I'm Mark Carroll, and welcome to episode 83 of Carol Pop. Tickets are now on sale for a Carol Pop live event. My onstage conversation with actor, singer, director Michael Shannon at the club Space in Evanston, Illinois on July 31st. Go to evansonspace.com for more information and to buy tickets. Our guest this week is the chief songwriter for two of my favorite bands, as well as one of the most active advocates for artists' rights and a university professor, David Lowry. I first spoke with David back when I was writing about his band Camper Van Beethoven for the Boston Phoenix. I already was a big fan of Camper's energetic, sharp-witted, all-over-the-place indie albums when, in 1988, the band released its Great Leap Forward major label debut, Our Beloved Revolutionary Sweetheart. I asked him, among other things, whether the reference in Never Go Back to Playing a Mafia Show at the Rat referred to the Boston Club by that name. It did. Never gonna go back to the rat play another mafia show again. The next time I spoke with him was at South by Southwest in 1992, after Camper had broken up during the European tour for its album Key Lime Pie, and Lowry was launching a new band, Cracker. Cracker took a more streamlined musical approach, leaning on American soul, country, and rock roots, and adding big choruses, even as Lowry's tongue often remained in cheek. After I heard an advanced cassette of the album, I predicted to a DJ friend that teen angst, what the world needs now, would be a smash. That did prove to be a popular track, but the commercial breakthrough came with a second Cracker album, 1993's Kerosene Hat. It featured the singles Low and Get Off This, as well as a hidden track that became a live show staple, Euro Trash Girl. Amid a rock scene dominated by grunge, Lowry, guitarist Johnny Hickman, and the rest of Cracker were bringing smart, catchy Americana to the masses. Lowry continued making excellent music with Cracker, but starting with its third album, The Golden Age, the commercial returns began diminishing. Camper Van Beethoven reunited in the late 1990s and has released three more studio albums, New Roman Times and the paired Northern and Southern California concept albums like Costa Perdida and El Camino Real in 2013 and 2014, respectively. 2014 also is the year of Cracker's conceptual California-themed double album, Berkeley the Bakersfield. The rocking Berkeley disc feature the kerosene hat lineup and such would-be hit singles as Beautiful. The more acoustic Bakersfield disc rotated in other musicians and included the heartbreaking standout, Almond Grove. Yeah, I'm going back home to the cotton fields, to the almond grove. Although he's continued performing with both bands, sometimes on double bills, there haven't been any Camper or Cracker records since then. Instead, Lowry has been recording a series of autobiographical solo albums. The latest, Vending Machine, came out earlier this year and finds him reflecting on the rise and fall of Cracker and the music business's ability to pull him back in every time he tries to get out. You don't need to be a musician to relate to the sentiment of the lead track, It Don't Last Long. Cause it don't last long Enjoy it while you can It don't last long Lowry has been releasing these albums only on CD, and he has held them back from Spotify and other streaming services. Lowry has been outspoken in his criticism of the music business for years. I interviewed him in 2013 for a Chicago Tribune article about whether musicians can make money from streaming services. At the time, he was very critical of Pandora and hopeful about Spotify. You'll hear whether he still feels that way, and why he thinks musicians essentially are loaning money to streaming services when they sign on. We also discuss, does he write differently for Cracker, Camper Van 
and Beethoven and solo projects? Why do his songs have so many memorable first lines? Does he plan to record again with either band? How does he feel on stage playing a set with Camper followed by a set with Cracker? He is touring with Cracker again very soon. Lowry has a PhD and is a senior lecturer at the University of Georgia's Terry College of Business. His students are the beneficiaries of his deep knowledge of the music industry. Do they know his songs? How about their parents? How does he like living and working in Athens, Georgia, known for its dynamic music scene? I always get a lot from talking with David Lowry, and this certainly is no exception. Please enjoy this Carol Pop conversation with David Lowry. He's the recording contract and all of the unrecorded. Good to see you. Good to talk to you. Thank you for doing this. Nice to see you as well. It's been a while since we've talked. You're coming to space in July, I saw, for two nights, both sold yeah. out with, cra- with Cracker. Yeah, that's so, with Cracker. That's right. Is that the full, is that the full band? Because I saw you doing sort of a Cracker acoustic show there years ago, just with Johnny. Yeah, this is the full band. I mean, the full band in the sense that, I mean, there's different ensembles of the full band all the way up to seven people but this is the four piece this is the rock show we're doing right now johnny had cut back on touring so is this this is sort of a rare occasion for you for cracker now right yeah well he cut back and then he's like oh i didn't mean to cut back that much um so he's doing a little more shows but uh a few more shows but if you notice there's there are like three or so in a row and then another three in a row with a gap. They're like gaps right in there just because he just has back issues and it's just tough for him to be in the van for like, um, you know, seven or eight days in a row. So he just doesn't do it. So do you view crackers still a band that's going to do stuff moving forward, like record new music? Yeah, but I just not, the economics of it are so bad to do like the, so I don't know if you know this, but you know, the way, the way that really, I mean, maybe it's obvious from the outside, but, but Cracker doesn't really like, you know, write songs like sort of, you know, the demo and all that stuff. It just doesn't like, you know, where we demo everything in advance. Um, uh, just Johnny's way of, of co-writing with me is like you know basically we're all in the studio together and we just sort of make something up or we're all in the rehearsal space together and make something up um it's not like we're sending you know files back and forth like i might do with like camper van beethoven or something like that or even just with my own solo stuff so it tends to be more of like if we're going to write a record sort of need to go into rehearsal space for eight or 10 days a couple times and just write it all you know sort of live as we're playing and uh, that's the cracker dynamic but um the economics of that isn't as good anymore so and and, you know and then it also requires sort of being in the studio with everybody together it doesn't really sound like cracker if we don't really do that so the economics of it have been tough and i keep saying okay well we'll do it this summer and then we don't do it and then I'll say, okay, well, we'll do it next summer. And then we don't do it. But I think uh, we probably will try to do it this year. It's just not going to be this summer. So with Cracker, you're not just like writing songs and you think, oh, that's a Cracker song. And then when you have like 10 Cracker songs, well, you get I together have... and say, here we go. Here's some Cracker songs. Let's do some more. 
Yeah, I, I do have, I know when the idea, like I'll have like sort of a riff or a melodic thing or a, or a piece of lyrics and I go, oh, okay, that needs to go in the cracker pile. But in order to finish it, it's more like get everybody into the room together and rehearse it. Like for instance, Berkeley to Bakersfield, you know, what we did, because the Berkeley disc is the kind of the, the famous Cracker lineup. That's Michael Urbano and Davey Farragher. Right. And, and so all those like, songs and all those songs are co-written, I noticed. So like the, the Berkeley yeah. record is all co-writes for the four of you. And then the Bakersfield record is more like you and different people, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the Berkeley record is, yeah, we went into the studio in Michael Urbano's studio. I think we did three weekends like kind of like two or three months apart, <laughs> I think is what we did. And we knocked out like those song ideas. And yeah, so that's all collaborative. Written. The Bakersfield disc is somewhat um, that was done more or less in the studio in Athens. Uh, but that was a little more just kind of me, mostly me bringing in stuff or co-writing with people. Yeah, but that was done that way. And um, those were all done with major label, but not major label budgets, but with, you know, a real record label and real budgets and stuff like that. And whereas like, you know, the other style is sort of me kind of writing stuff, demos, and then shipping the tracks off to, you know, my, you know, like my solo stuff, shipping the tracks off to Brian Howard and Carlton Owens, my drummer, the current drummer and bass player, and them laying down their tracks in the studio or sending stuff off to um, Luke Moeller in Australia to do the violin and string parts or sending stuff off to Pistol in the studio. And that, that's a different style of writing and a different style of record. When you write a song, do you think this is a solo song versus this is a camper song or this is a cracker song at this point, at least? Yeah, I, I I think I can I can do that, but my main focus lately is just to sort of knock out these solo songs. There's a few things I've tossed over into the other pile for both of the bands because I like oh, that that would be good to do you know to develop that with the full band or to develop that with the camper guys. But um, yeah, my focus has been my solo stuff lately, so that's what I'm doing. I've also yeah. too you know since I teach uh full time at the university like i was appointed senior lecturer so that's like a real job you know that that's a real job that people raise their families on and stuff like that you know and right with a pension and stuff like that i take that pretty seriously so i do a lot of my writing in this month may's may's a great month may and june is when i usually do a heavy round of writing and i also do a heavy round of writing in november december 2014 was a lot of stuff from you because you had this double album and then this kind of like second half of this sort of these two sort of conceptual records. And then then since then, you've had these four uh, solo records that you've put out and you've you've sold those sort of independently. Uh, mm -hmm. What is your thinking now in terms of just how to make this work? I mean, what you've been doing is you've been selling them just on CD and downloads you've been signing them and mailing them out and you're just because like the economics of dealing with labels and stuff is just totally messed up, but I'll let you explain it. Yeah. So most of the time labels, if they give you an advance, they don't really give you much of an advance. So you end up paying for, you know, you end up have your, your lost opportunity costs, your own labor and 
your own you know, expenses. Like I, I pay everybody to record on my records and I do it at the, the Nashville standard AF of M rate. Um, so I spend money out of pocket to make my solo records and, um, it works way better. I get my money back faster if I sell it directly mail order to the fans and on physical product in particular CDs have the best margin. Plus I've just fallen in love with CDs again. I think they sound great compared to streaming and I've been doing it that way. And that just sorts out sort of the need for a label to give me an advance and then take a high percentage of the royalties. Cause that's, that's how it works. Right. The problem is, is that not everybody is going to buy your CD or a mail order and stuff like that. But, and you know, a lot of people have a lot of the more civilian types, you know, people who are not hardcore music fans tend to, you know, listen to music on streaming services now and stuff like that. So what I'm really doing is I'm doing a model more like the movie business or the way an author develops a book. And then the book is turned into a movie or something like that, or the way a movie company will release to the theater and make their money that way, window it, and then eventually it'll go onto streaming services and stuff like that. That's that's what I'm trying to do. That's the model that actually works pretty well right now, but it's not going to work for new artists, but it works for me. So eventually, so I've done these four solo albums. Eventually I will put them on streaming services. In fact, the target date is to put them on streaming services in 2024 and do that like do kind of a go global release of these albums with like a proper multinational label partner which will be cooking vinyl that's the plan i've come up with them and so those will be more widely available right. but in the meantime my albums would have earned close to about two hundred thousand dollars by doing it this way, which, you know, it's not, not what, you know, we would have earned, you know, back in the nineties or the, you know, with the CDs, but that's a significant amount in the streaming world. That would be, you know, if you figure all rights considered all streams in, you know, you need about a million streams to get $5,000, right? So, I mean, that's like 40 million streams which is would be pretty impressive if I put out a solo seed solo album and garnered 40 million streams. I mean, now right. of course I'm doing it across four albums, but it just doesn't happen for people my age and playing the kind of music that I play now. 40, so, 40 million is a really good showing. So someone could go on to it's, it's David Lowry music.com, right? That's mm -hmm. your, so you mm -hmm. can go on there and you could order these records. Uh, you also can listen to them. So they're sort of streaming mm -hmm. yep. on your site. Yep. Um, they're just not, but it's not on Spotify and Apple at this point. So 2024, then you, then you do that. Like, how do you sort of weigh the, you know, I, I want to not get exploited for my music, which is something you're obviously very uh, you know, cognizant of with the, I want as many people to hear it as possible. Like, how do you balance those things? Well, you know, the music business ran for a long time where you just didn't have immediate access to everything. Right. Right. Sure. And, um, you know, you had to be kind of a fan. You had to go down to the store and buy it. Um, I'm certainly not rolling it 
back to those days because you can stream it off my website. You actually can also uh, stream it on Bandcamp, which is a really interesting environment, but it works differently than the regular streaming services. You basically buy the album. If people aren't familiar with Bandcamp, it's a lot of, uh, you know, it's a lot of aspirational musicians as well as legacy artists like myself or, you know, people like X release things there, you know, and stuff like that. So Bandcamp, you actually buy the track and then you stream it. And, you know, you have a sort of a, a library of stuff within Bandcamp, hopefully a bunch of indie, you know, artists, sometimes not just indie artists, and they're in the Bandcamp environment, right? But I get all the money up front, right? So the thing about streaming is you're you're getting paid your revenue over 20 you know years or something like that, you know? And uh, that's actually very, very exploitative because it actually essentially... Uh, you know, the the artists loan the streaming services money, right? People don't think about that. That forces the artists to put in all the upfront cash and then the streaming services pay it back, you know, sort of one stream at a time. That's right. super exploitative. And it's not How exactly anybody... high rate either. No. <laughs> I mean, but but just say I do generate 40 million streams on those four albums. It'll be over something like 10 years, Right. So effectively, I've loaned that money. If I did just streaming, I would loan that money to the streaming services. Right. So anyway, I don't really think I'm losing out on that much audience by doing it this way. I'm missing out on the casual listener that might one day some of those might be converted to being real fans, you know, that would come to shows and stuff like that. But I just don't feel like I'm really losing out that much right this isn't really any different than what the movie business does right this is sort of their the way that they've they window things they have different platforms you got to buy it then you can rent it then you can you got to buy it you, you got to buy a ticket in the theater then you can buy it online then you can rent it right then it's just free on a you know streaming service right that's all i'm doing it's really right. not radical at all you got the theaters, then you got the DVD, and the and then it's on Showtime or whatever. I was going to say another difference is just you know the role of radio, um, where you would get exposed because you get played on radio, and more people listen to rock radio, and it wasn't so splintered with people listening to Spotify and listening to satellite and and you know and all these rigid kind of formats. I mean, how much of a difference has you know the change in radio made to you? Um, I mean that kind of changed for us you know in the late 90s this, this is really pre-digital music scene that changed for us in the late 90s when what what had been alternative rock radio shifted kind of to harder things like new metal remember the great rap metal scare you know <laughs> um and so that, never there was only I know, me neither, but that's what alternative radio shifted away from. So, you know, basically then Cracker, you know, was basically left to play in a much smaller pool, a much uh, smaller format, AAA and Amer the budding Americana, you know, radio format came out. And so we really didn't, didn't have much radio play by the late 90s. So we were already operating as you know more of a niche cult artist by then and that's you know basically for the last 25 years that's how we've operated so doing my solo stuff essentially the same way without radio 
is fine and familiar to me. I talked to you for a 2013 story I did for the Chicago Tribune, and it was about this, all these, you know, newish uh services like Pandora and Spotify and YouTube and where people are listening to music. And, um, and, and I talked to you about it. And at the time you were very down on Pandora. Um, and because Pandora at that time was fighting to lower, lower the already small rates that uh, musicians were receiving. And I, I don't hear that much about Pandora these days. You know, and at the time, Spotify was relatively, relatively new. Um, and you and you were sort of more on the fence at the time. You, I have a, a paragraph that says Lowry says he's, quote, kind of ambivalent about Spotify. They sincerely believe they are helping artists and the music business. They may well be, but the jury is out. Were they sincere in helping artists in the music business? You can be both. They could, they were sincere, but then as it turned out, we discovered over the next two years that they really hadn't bothered to license. They didn't have licenses with large numbers of independent self-published songwriters. And they just were operating without licenses and without paying those artists, their mechanical royalties. And when, when it became public, their instinct was to not admit fault and not to do anything about it. And so we sued them. <laughs> so, so, uh, yeah, you know, I mean, and they still have to this day, I, I don't know if people realize this, but in April of 2020, when musicians had lost all of their live music income, those big streaming services, including not including Apple, but Amazon, Spotify, and YouTube appealed to the copyright royalty board, the rates that they were supposed to be paying songwriters in effect, lowering songwriter royalties 40% at the start of the pandemic. Does that seem like a good company to you? Does that seem like a company that really cares about, you know, helping artists and musicians at that moment in time. Not like the musicians were raking it in at those uh, earlier rates either. I know. So you're going to cut the rates essentially 40% save that. That was it for me. That was it. That was like, these companies need to die. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> like they, go they, out of business. They need to be like, just relegated to being maybe not go out of business, but relegated to being the Columbia record club of the digital world. Like where you get the records at a kind of a cheap rate, but it's long after the albums have come out. I mean, the thing that they were sort of promising at the time I did that piece was that, well, we're early, but as we get up to scale, the more people who listen, the more there's going to be this huge pool of money that's going to be shared by the musicians. And so the musicians will make real money in a way that they hadn't before. Like, so, so why didn't that happen? Were they just, was it just, they just kept the rate so low that they didn't, you know, ramp up the payments along with the, you know, volume of streams that they were getting? Well, those streaming rate is set by the copyright royalty board for songwriters and just i don't know if people aren't very smart they can't see the second order effects there was something sinister going on for whatever reason the copyright royalty board set the songwriter rates as a percentage of revenue so essentially what happens is um, the streaming services set aside 15 i think it's 15 point I think this year it's 15.1% of their revenue. And then that's divided up among the songwriters. 
prorated according to how many songs are streamed, right? So you take 15% of revenue. So as soon as those services stopped growing, um, that rate, well, no, not even that. I mean, just that rate for songwriters was going to be a function of whatever price the streaming services were charging, right? So it was never going to change unless they raised the rate that they were charging the consumers, unless they went from $9 to $20, right? That's the only way the songwriter rate's going to change, right? And when the cop and see, that's set by a federal process. There's no free market for songs and streaming. It's set by government fiat, right? And, and that's the songwriting so, as opposed to the performance. That's the songwriter royalty, right? The performance royalty is slightly different, but it's also capped by a federal process. Now, the labels, they're rate isn't necessarily set by the government, but what the labels did is they are like, well, this is how we're doing the songwriter royalty. So we'll do the same thing. We'll take a percentage of revenue as well. So once you had fixed the price for streaming at $9.99 a month, that rate was never going to change. It's a little bit of math. I know, I know people who came to your podcast are saying to you right now, it's like, you told me there was going to be no math, right? No, no, no. So we like math the on, math of it. But. We like math on the podcast. We're, this, we have a very nerdy uh, audience here. So math away. Okay. Well, once, once you set a rate and then the further compounded by the fact that, you know, I think the, what the labels didn't see and the publishers and the copyright royalty board didn't see is that, that didn't really stop anybody from giving away the music for free, right? So Spotify has a free tier. You know, YouTube is effectively free. Nobody pays for YouTube, right? right? And so it's just ad supported. And that's that's where the problem is. It's the, the problem is when people stream on the ad supported tiers, it's just completely abysmal. Add a couple more zeros after the decimal point before the first significant digit. I was going to say, when I did that story, the executive at YouTube insisted that YouTube is not a music service. I have a thing here. It's Lowry likened YouTube to a shakedown service and requiring artists to sign a contract in order to have say over and be compensated for their work that appears on the site. Exactly. Otherwise you can't get your stuff off of it. They say you can, but there's a ton of, there's a, not a ton. There's a number of lawsuits alleging that directly right now. So I was right. They were wrong. Well, and also they were not. I mean, they, they're totally a music service. Right. I know. 50. Here's something people don't realize. More than half of all music streams occur on YouTube. It's like the last time we checked with our and we I mean, I guess the tricordist, um, because we have access to a catalog, a large catalog of songs that we get to look at every year privately we're given this privately and we can see effectively what the shares are the last time we checked youtube was 53 percent of all music streams spotify was more was around more like 26 or 27 and then the rest was made up by apple amazon and the rest of them right does apple function similarly to the others or is there any yeah but there's no free tier so apple's rate ends up being higher because it's a subscription price. I mean, you get some kind of intro rate, but it goes away after a month with Apple. So most of the time, Apple streams, you're getting, you know, say, you know, rights holders are, say, getting 60% of whatever 
you know, that subscription rate is right. Whereas, you know, you know, YouTube, you're getting a much, you're getting maybe rights holders are maybe getting 60% of a much lower, much lower advertising revenue. So when you're teaching at the university of Georgia, is this the kind of stuff you're talking about? Like, what are your, mm -hmm. what are your courses that you're teaching there? I teach an intro course, which is just introduce people to different roles and things in the music business. That's actually pretty collaborative with the students. The first assignment they do is they tell me what they want to know about. And then it largely ends up becoming the same 15 or 16 topics, right? And then I teach that. But no, my big courses are business fundamentals as applied to the music business, which is pretty broad. But we do, that's that's about the money, the economics, the finance, management strategy, marketing, organizations, things like that. That's about, so we touch on a lot of this. And then my current upper level course is music publishing and licensing, which is very, very deep into all of this. And then I'm working on a public policy in the music business course. Since so much stuff is set, so much pay and how the music business works is done under pretty heavy uh, federal regulation, right? We're not a very free business, right? right. And it's partly because um, there are some things like, you know, the copyright royalty board out there, but then also we have such big conglomerates, almost all of them are working under consent decrees. I don't know if you know what consent decrees are, but that's where the antitrust division oversees um, a lot of the operations, you know, like Ticketmaster, Live Nation, like those operate under consent decrees. BMI, ASCAP operate under consent decrees. Even at, uh, UMG, Warner, and Sony have essentially had to do certain things when they acquired, uh, what was the last company they acquired? EMI Capital. Yeah. What's this makeup of your, your students? So is it a lot? Do you have musicians and business kids like what's the how does that break down it's about two-thirds students from the business school about a third of them are either from the music program which is a different college than ours um, we're divided into college we're university so we have sub colleges and uh yeah so it's about two-thirds but that's not to say that the the business kids aren't also musicians there's a ton of finance and accounting people playing in jam bands and stuff like that right. you'd be surprised right and they're all pretty versed in like sort of music right do you have a sense of how many of them are taking the course because they know you and your music oh not very many that's not really my demo um they might, some of them, the classic thing, when, when we did USO um, MWR shows in Iraq back in the 2000s, the classic thing is like young infantrymen would walk up to you, men and women would walk up to you with a CD and say, can you sign this for my parents? And uh, <laughs> that's, you get a lot of that. We get a lot of that where they've been turned on to our music. If they are fans, they're usually more turned on to it because their parents are fans. Um, but a lot of students don't really know my history until the first lecture, which I give them it. And then I would say we've, we have a much younger demographic in Georgia in the Southeast now, because I probably taught like seven or 8,000 students over 12 years. Right. I've big right. classes. So they generally don't come in knowing my bands. No. 
So it's not like halfway through the course, they're like, dude, I heard this skinheads bowling song and that's you. Well, they, they do. Some of them do in fact, but, uh, the first day I just explained in all those classes, I explained them to them, my background, which just doesn't just include music, you know, it includes some other stuff I've done in my life, you know, with venture capital, private capital reverb, um, reverb the music website um based out of chicago music Institute. right what were you doing with them i was a seed investor because when i was a quant in chicago that company was called reverb when i was doing you know work as a effectively an ant more like an anti-quant it was with a private it was private money for it was called reverb (laughs) trading but it's also the guy who bought Chicago Music Exchange and it evolved into Reverb, the music gear website. Right. Because that's what that is. I mean, if you don't realize that, that just grew out of the long Chicago tradition of having market makers on commodities and futures. Reverb was set up to help make markets for the Chicago Music Exchange in their large pool of um, used instruments. How, how long were you here, by the way? You, you sing about this on your new album, Vending Machine, which uh, which is sort of your... About, about six months. So it wasn't a long stint in Chicago. No. Really, it was really only for a summer, but um, it was literally from Bear Stearns to Lehman Brothers where I was actually living in Chicago. So it was a really um, unusual time to sort of go back to sort of my mass finance sort of, because I had a little bit of background in that um, in my first job out of college. And so I had a little background in that. So it's just sort of, that was a very crazy time to be in that business, even if it was just sort of part time, because, uh, you know, obviously the world went crazy for a while. The, fight, the markets went crazy for, you know, six months there. Went to go work in the loop in Chicago, arbitraged options by day, sat on the board of a couple of startups. Some good friends, but I just couldn't stay. So vending machine, you're you're writing a lot about it seems like your years in cracker and mm-hmm. all these other incidents. Did you sort of specifically think, okay, I'm gonna write, I mean, you have a bunch of records in a row that are of this nature. Like I'm gonna write more autobiographical now than I have mm-hmm. in the past. Mm-hmm. Uh yeah, I just was sort of more interested in um well, you know, I sort of explored the idea of writing the audio autobiography, which usually musicians about my age, that's what they do. Um, and but the you know, the the market for that is first of all extraordinarily small. It's really amazing how few books are really sold. Like I've learned that. Like, you know, if Cracker has a mailing list of forty thousand people, right? And I just did the book to that list. I would be like on the New York Times bestseller list, right? It's just such a small market. And so once I realized like how little money there really is in writing a book, I go, well, I should just do it as music because I know how to do that. I know how to market it. I know where to sell it. And I just do that, right? And there's also the other thing is once you do have a book, it's there's kind of a format 
He knows, well, this is where I grew up and this is how I first heard of music. And then I came to the struggle part where my parents, society or something was holding me back. And then I had to overcome that to get my music out to the people. And um, like, for instance, you know, when you get to that, I go, well, I don't really have that. My father was an enlisted man in the military and my mother, you know, was she was, you know, the old school housewife that took care of, you know, mom housewife that took care of the kids. They loved music. They encouraged me to play music. They never had a problem with me going into music business. So I start diverging from the standard like cookie cutter narrative that you get with virtually every rock autobiography. So I was like, I'm not going to do that. So I'm going to sing my family's praises in these songs the whole time and just kind of write for my family, my extended family and people that were around me or I were influential or part of my life, whatever like that, and just kind of sing their praises and just kind of do the opposite of it. You posted on Facebook a few days ago. I'm just going to read this. Next time we meet, let's talk about anything but music. Not that I don't like music. I like music. I like playing music. I just feel like I've been talking about music for 40 years. Also, let's not talk about my bands. Again, 40 years. All bands are basically the same. The same dynamics, the same cliches, the same struggles, the same hurdles overcome, the same highs, the same lows, the same issues with record labels, managers and agents, the same love stories, the same divorces, the same missed opportunities and the same lucky breaks, the same substance abuse, the same recoveries, the same secret truths, the same tall tales, the same friendly and not so friendly rivalries, the same petty grievances, the same small kindnesses, the same injuries and mental disorders. The same hysterical and chaotic disorder, and that is not to say it's not fun, but it's also kind of boring. Like I could do a Mad Lib book that you could adapt for every band by filling in the blanks slightly differently. There's nothing new under the sun. So this is yeah. like this is a few days before I'm talking to you. I thought I thought I was just gonna like start. I, I consider just starting this interview by going, well, how about them bulldogs? How's the weather down there? Yeah. Well, this is professional, right? I will talk about music in a professional format and i will talk about it you know when we put out records and stuff like that i'm just talking about seeing people seem to have you know a lot of the fans and stuff like that it's like it's sort of intimidated to talk to me sometimes or like and i think what they fundamentally don't understand is like i, I really after a show i just don't really want to talk about music right that's just that's just kind of the thing and most artists feel that way but they just won't come out and publicly say it and then yeah and that sort of that cliche that i talk about all the cliches you know and stuff like that that is right. exactly the same that's what i discovered from the autobiographies and that is what is true about every band you know you started the title track of the album vending machine with the line i passed out underneath the desk of the publisher of spin magazine like okay but who wouldn't want to hear more of that story so a is that true and what the hell was that about and then maybe you know you should just write it up anyway yeah well that was the end of the modest mouse camper van beethoven tour in 2005 it was a very hard partying tour and there was like a the end of the tour party was at spin magazine offices right i don't really need to, i think that's all you need to know actually it's right? true actually <laughs> you don't really need to know more than that <laughs> right it's just like 
that's where that's what it's about, right? I think that's that's the basic information that you that you need. I just think everything else is a cliche, and you've heard it all before. It's not really that interesting. I was thinking about you know sort of things that distinguish your your songwriting, and one of them is that you have very good first lines, and that's an example of one. Um, and yeah. I could just start start reading other ones when when you're starting to write a song. Do you think of that first line first? Do you come up with a riff and then think what the song's about? Do you come up with the title? Like, where does it, where does it start? Um, it usually starts with music, and then I think about what I'm saying about. But not with this record. This is me flipping the script on on my writing styles to purposely come up with concepts and then just try to find the music for it. You know, a story, a subject, and come up with a story. But I will say over the years, I learned something from a friend who'd been a journalism major who told me early on, why are you burying the lead about a couple of songs, right? I don't remember which songs they were, but it was like, why are you burying the lead, right? And I was like, what's the lead? And they'd tell me the line. So I started becoming really conscious of what's the best line to start a song with. First time I talked to you was probably 1988. I was writing for the Boston Phoenix after I graduated college and I gotten uh, our beloved revolutionary sweetheart. And I asked you about this line was another great first line. Never going to go back to the rat and play another mafia show again. You told me the story about the rat owner. And I think you said he had a um, tracheotomy or something. And I'd yeah, I had one of those voice. It was terrifying because I realized I was way out of my league. <laughs> But uh, yeah, so so like those first lines, you know, you you're, you weren't bearing lead on that one. And my wife is from Dixon. Her last name also is Dixon because he's always living back in Dixon circa 1949. And that totally sets up that song as well. So first line. Right. No, well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. At some point I became more conscious of getting the first line right that pulls you in. I don't always do it because sometimes it's too... It's too much, right? I don't know how to describe it. It's, it's, it's too much. But but I, I try to think about what the first line of the song is. Tell the story from there. Get people interested in the song. So, so a lot of times starting in the middle, going back. Starting at the end, going back. Did the way that you approach songwriting change from you know, over that time and over these different projects you were working on? Yeah, I mean, um, especially with the autobiographical stuff, which is much more about let's focus on the stories and then, you know, sort of the music can come next instead of where those bands generally started with music, maybe an idea for a course or something like that. These ones, these ones are different. These really, because of the autobiographical records, they kind of taught me kind of a different way to write in fact i don't know if i want to give away the secrets yet but i'll give you one of the things on the solo records oftentimes i'm using the same chords as other cracker or camper van beethoven songs like leaving key member clause is just me singing different melodies over sick of good guys huh which is the one early on in vending machine is it fat little baby there's one where it sounds a little bit like um I was, I was, I was. You like, got, like, you got fat little babies is another one. I think yeah. it's, um, ambiguity it's like heart song. and yeah, ambiguity song. It's ambiguity song. It's the same chords to that, but there's only so many chord progressions and that happens a lot anyway, but the melody is literally, I combined heart and borders, scars, melody 
also over the top of ambiguity songs chords so they're made so that i you know i'm purposely doing that on purpose like here are the words that i want to sing and i'll just oftentimes find something else that the chord progression of the vibe is something that i want to take and then i change it and then the first song is it don't last long and it's you sort of reflecting on basically like hey you know we never you, you never know how great you have it until like you look back on it and you're like hey that was really a fantastic time is that something you sort of felt does that sort of become crystallized because you're writing the song like how does that it was just a vehicle so i could tell sort of some key parts of the story of sort of cracker becoming popular sort of crackers rise and fall with virgin records right that's what i'm doing so it don't last long is kind of the device uh you know so you have a good chorus to sing along to and sort of that's the overarching that's the greek chorus right (laughs) that's what they keep saying right but the verses are the that's the device so i can tell chronologically a story over three verses well, and it's one of these things where like the verses are really specific. Like, I guess you you really taught the audience to sing the record own, label owner's phone number. So, his direct line, that's sort of pre-mobile, but, um, but yeah, his direct line uh, phone number. Trying to rent Frank Sinatra's house. I didn't know that. That seems like that would have been fun if you could have done it. Um, but then, but then the chorus that don't last long is something that is totally universal. Like, like you can sort of fill in your own, anyone could fill in their own details about whatever was going on, but it don't last long, you know, especially when you get to a certain age and you're being reflective, Mm -hmm. you're like, Oh yeah, you know, that was, I could sing that song about my years at the, in daily newspaper journalism, (laughs) you know, it's like, right. Right. It applies to a lot of things and especially sort of now looking back, um, I mean, again, for where we are relatively age wise, but also just in terms of how much stuff, changes in general right so and you know that's the one constant is change you know that's what we have in all of our lives and so it's very relatable right it's relatable to everybody so hopefully that's a theme that the chorus everybody can relate to and then they get the details of my own story in the verses that's and then you supply advice and then you bookend the album. The last song is "Every Time I Try to Get Out," um, which your your Al Pacino and Godfather Three. Uh, exactly. Every time I try to get out, they pull me back in. I try to go straight, try to keep me a day job, but I miss my songs and my friends. I have one more disc to do for this series, and then I really have to give it a break, do something else. But um, and I'm working on it actually now since it's May. Um, but that would be the last song I think on the on this series of the autobiographical tracks that would be the last one but yeah it specifically is like yeah I, you know I've, I've tried to do other things but there's a certain amount of uh that i am compelled to play music and write songs even if i tried to sort of semi-retire or something like that i'm gonna keep doing it and yeah it was just i couldn't believe that nobody had ever referenced that line in the godfather in in music i mean such you know it's like a meme you know it's like nobody's ever referenced it with music but it's perfect for that my son wants to be a journalist i'm like oh couldn't you pick something (laughs) less disrupted like the music business and he laughs right right he's gonna do it man because he wants to do it he thinks it's really interesting so um, well you need people who are curious about stuff and who are gonna like dig into things because there's so much being missed right now it drives me crazy he's also 
be done with it. And then I'm just like, ah, no, because I want these questions answered. And it gives you license to ask the questions. Yeah, he exactly. And also too, it would be a shame if my, this is my younger son, but he's been able to write better than my grad students at the university since he was about 13. So it'd be really a shame if he didn't write for people, for an audience. So How old is he now? just works that way. Uh, he's 20. So he's in college trying to get into Grady here at UGA, the journalism school here. So nice. that's what he's trying to do. So Yeah, my, my older daughter's 20 and she's just like, I'm majoring in creative writing. And I'm like, great. That's, uh, mm-hmm. you know, keep writing creatively um, mm-hmm. and, you know, keep an eye out on stuff that pays too. So yeah, I know. Uh, I told him he needs to develop a sideline in writing ghostwriting pieces for politicians and corporations, basically, or something like that, where you get the real money, right? But didn't want to hear it. But anyway. Is, is it fun for you that, you know, you're working at a university that's in this college town that has produced so much great music? Like like yeah. I mean, Athens, Georgia has like totally punched above its weight for years and and you know just the great bands it's produced. Yeah, that's a good way of describing it punched above its weight um, because, but really um, the entire state has for a long time. And that's why we're in the process of basically getting a music office and trying to figure out how to keep. So, so my music business program came about sort of on its own at the University of Georgia, but now it's sort of part of a greater state strategy of like, how do we keep our artists here? How do we keep their royalties? How do we keep the labels here? How do we keep the producers here? Like the same thing that they've done essentially, unfortunately you have to do it a different way than we did it for film. You know, where the, at least for production, we're the big state now for film. Absolutely. Oh yeah. Production. You see that little Georgia peach logo at the end of so many TV shows and movies now. Right. And it's now we have developed the, the skill set to do all of that stuff. We need to take it to the next level though, where we're having the more of the, aside from Tyler Perry, we're having the writers and, you know, the, th- the things develop locally, but they're kind of now swung around. with like, Oh, music, what can we, you know, but it's so, so for a long time, I mean, so you talk about, so yeah, Athens, Georgia is known for like producing jam, indie rock, rock bands and all that stuff. But Atlanta basically has come to pretty much dominate hip hop as well. Right. Um, and we have this special problem in Georgia in that, we're too close to Nashville for us to really develop like sort of kind of a record label, you know, because most record labels have moved their real, most of their operations to Nashville. Now they just have the really the main creatives in LA and New York. Now, most of the operations are actually in Nashville. We're, so it's an interesting, funny problem. So I, so basically, yeah, just, you know, this program developed on its own, at University of Georgia, we're really interesting. We're unique compared to all the music business programs because we are not a four-year degree. We don't want to be a four-year degree, or at least privately. That's well, maybe it's not so private. We don't want to be a four-year degree. So students have real majors, often very useful, high skill, highly desired skill majors. And then they have a certificate in the music business where they take their skills like finance or strategy or marketing, and they have enough music business knowledge that then they go out and work 
for the labels, the big management companies, the agencies. We are a pipeline hmm. of talent into those things, those entities now. So yeah, I mean, we developed independently, but also to now there's a little bit of a state strategy where we've come around to sort of say, hey, we also punch above our weight on music in a couple different categories and genres. And um, how can we help, you know? Georgia is a lot more, especially Metro Atlanta, is a lot more diverse than people think it is. I think they throw us in with a lot of the southern states that are maybe, I mean, we're going to be like California in a decade where, you know, essentially, you know, like where effectively the the white majority is going to be the most dominant population group, but it's going to actually be a minority here, right? Right in metro atlanta it might even be sooner than that it might be five years or whatever um so you go to atlanta and it's a very international city you know i'm in athens georgia but i sort of also have access you know just 55 miles away is atlanta which is you know like a world-class international city yeah i mean you've lived a lot of places from from coast to coast do you feel like you're at home now where you are yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, this is sort of the last, I'm not going to live any place else. So, um, and, uh, slowly, I think my, my younger son has moved here. I expect my older son eventually to move here. And, uh, so yeah, I feel like, I feel like I'm here. I saw a clip of you playing at the 40 watt club. It looked like some sort of show writers, songwriter showcase in March. Is that well, we do our do often, festival. Or? We sort of do our smaller fan festival here in March now. That's, we call it, instead of the camp out, we call it the camp in, uh, just because it's an indoor show. But um, I do usually a, the Thursday night, we usually invite another songwriter in with me and Johnny. We do a, a, you know, sort of a songwriter's round. Speaking of camp out and in, what's the status of Camper Van Beethoven? Are you going to do more shows with them? Uh, yeah, well, I think we should. I mean, it's a little, you know, we're on three continents in five different time zones, so it's a little tricky. Uh, and COVID, you know, basically for a long time, you know, Chris the drummer's in Australia. And, I mean, he couldn't even leave. Right. So it sort of interrupted that whole thing. But yeah, I think we should do a I think we should do a 20 year follow up to New Roman Times. We should do New Roman Times part two. And then if if the band wants to do that, I'll do some touring. So like uh, do an album sequel to New Roman Times. Yeah, why not? <laughs> It'll be 20 years. Well, and it's, then it's 85 is also the 40th anniversary of the first camper record. So I think we should have to do, we should do something in the next few years. When you guys get together is how, you know, what is the dynamic among you all? Like now, is it like old friends just, you know, like, like no time has passed, like are people sort of in different places now? Um, I think it's like old friends, like no time has passed. I mean, in fact, some ways that's kind of annoying. I haven't seen any of those guys since uh, 2000, summer of 2019. But it's a lot more feasible, economically viable to do a camper record because everybody is kind of basically pretty skilled studio engineers, <laughs> you know, now themselves, you know, like, so it's not like there's a lot of, it, it's easier to do it in virt virtually with camper Van Beethoven than it is with Cracker. It's just kind of impossible to do Cracker virtually. 
I remember talking to you down in Austin before that first Cracker record came out, and we were talking about uh, the end of Camper, and and you were saying that like sort of the main musical divide you had was that you felt like the other guys wanted to do more stuff that sounded like prog, and you were just like Camper is not a prog band, and you didn't want to mm-hmm. do that. Do you feel like over time you guys ironed out those differences, or just sort of learned to sort of accept it all? I think over time we ironed out those differences, and then also too, you know. Um, uh, the last two camper records and well, new, the new Roman times, and then the, the California pair of camper records right. actually lean pretty hard into Prague. No, when, when new Roman times came out, I was sort of, I had that quote from you in my mind. I'm like, Oh, it's like, he's, he's letting in some of the Prague stuff now. Yeah, exactly. But that's like the twist, right? So what's the twist here? Oh, let's just embrace the Prague side of it. Right. And the idea for New Roman Times 2 would be to actually do a sequel to that record as opposed to just whatever you guys come up with. Yeah. Is it helpful for you? I mean, the last few Camper and Cracker records have had the and and solo records have had these kind of overarching themes. Do you do you like sort of thinking of albums as kind of concepts at this point? Yeah. So um at some point, like with Camper. I'm going to make a, a reference to something that's usually used more in a political context. I forget who it comes from. But it was really about second order thinking, right? So first order thinking, you come to the fence and you say, why is this fence here? It's restricting us. Let's tear it down, right? Second order thinking is like, I don't understand what this fence does. I'm going to find out what it does before I tear it down. So the second half of my career is all about like, well, let's let's go ahead and leave the fences there, the structure there and work within the framework, whereas Camper was more anarchic and literally postmodern in the beginning. You know what I mean? Right. But it's partly because, you know, sort of there's sort of this emptiness to sort of postmodern sort of artistic pursuits you're like yeah let's tear down all the boundaries then what when you would do there's nothing there you know or they just build more boundaries and fences and frameworks you know they yeah so why bother with that there's just sort of an emptiness to it in a way it's fun to do when you're 23 but not so much when you're older Mm. when you would when you would play a camper show set and then and then go off stage and then come back with cracker like what did it feel like to you to go from like one band to the other was there like a different kind of vibe in being on stage with each band it's a lot less work for me in camper van beethoven because it's like i'm really only i'm not even singing on all the songs right you know so there's a certain number of instrumentals and stuff that are in there and then when i am singing there's long instrumental passages and it's all about the instrumental passages and the counter melody when i am singing so i'm just one of many elements and it's just like physically easier to do and so i can be sort of more nerdy and muso and just Right. It's not a physical performance the way it is in Cracker. Cracker, you're more the focal point. Yeah. And and also just a lot more physical performance and just having to be kind of more on. So why do you have to be more on for, for Cracker? Because most of the time I'm singing and singing it requires a different level of con- yeah. it's both it's both physical and sort of creative in a way that you know just playing the guitar isn't when you think back on sort of the most exciting moments you've had on stage like what were they maybe some of those tours where we were you know we were really breaking 
And, you know, the audience, we were playing in front of a huge audience would be some of those We're talking about things. Cracker. cracker. Yeah. So like, I suppose when we played the, I forget the name of the, the radio station in DC, that was the main alternative radio station. It was there for many, many years. Anyway, they would have their spring, early summer outdoor radio festival in Washington, D.C., in RFK Stadium. And I remember walking out in RFK Stadium, completely packed, and just opening with a song. It's 96, with a song from the new Cracker record, um, you know, Golden Age, and everybody just knowing who we were and singing along. And, you know, I mean, that was pretty intense. But a lot of times those those moments uh, where it's just, like, really exciting and cool aren't necessarily in front of a huge crowd, you know? I mean, like a crowd, like a stadium crowd, you know, sometimes they were in places like the Metro in Chicago in front of 500 people. There are some good ones there at the Metro. I mean, what, when the wave was breaking for us, right. You know, they were, we were still in the small venues and stuff like that. So that, that does a lot of those were actually around, <laughs> I don't know, around the great lake somewhere for some reason, we always took off earlier in those cities. Also a strange thing happened to us with Charleston, South Carolina, our, our, we really became rock stars in South Carolina on our first album, uh, entire album ahead of, uh, of the rest of the country. <laughs> and, uh, that was really interesting. So, uh, a city I'd never played in with Camper Van Beethoven too. So how did you become rock stars just, there specifically? Um, because they had an odd radio station there, um, the Wave, um, that kind of was an alternative station, but it embraced Americana, and our record just synced up perfectly with their audience. That first album, CDs yeah. versus vinyl. You're 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 still in the CD camp. I'm in the CD camp and it sort of, I'd always been kind of leaning more towards CD because unless it's a really good vinyl pressing, unless you have a $2,000 turntable, I don't know if you're really getting it out of a vinyl player. Um, and a lot of what people like about vinyl is that the engineers actually mastered the, you know, the recordings differently for vinyl because of the limitations of recordings. So that's what people are hearing in their warmth, but you could do that with a CD. There's nothing stopping you doing that with a CD, but I guess the, so I'd always sort of been into the, the main problem with the CD era is man, people were mastering CDs very compressed and very hot so that they sounded loud on right. the radio right? Once radio went away, there was no reason to do that. And you can master CDs really well. And so I had a little end of the year party with my students here. And I noticed at my house and I noticed I saw a little small studio set up in the office that I'm in right now. And so we were all back here in the backyard and I was just playing music off of a CD player in my studio, right? And uh, I, I walked through the sort of the studio part and a couple of my students were just kind of clustered around the mixing board and like really listening to the speakers. And, uh, and they were like, what is this? And I was like, isn't it Marvin Gaye or whoever it was, is like a classic soul artist. And they go, no, 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 this isn't vinyl. 
and it's not streaming. What is this? I was like, I put it up in the corner. I was like, it's a CD player. And they're like, it sounds amazing. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, yeah, that's kind of, that was the moment. I was like, yeah, I'm going to keep doing CDs. Right. Easier to mail too. So yeah. And manufacture. Thanks so much, David. I appreciate it. Great talking to you. I can't wait to see and hear you in Chicago again and elsewhere too, I hope. Great. All right. See you later. Thank you. That's it for episode 83 of Carol Pop. Thanks so much to David Lowry for sharing his intelligence and sense of humor in his songs and conversation. You can listen to and order his music at davidlowrymusic.com, which also includes his bio and tour information. Cracker will be playing in Memphis on May 19th at the City Winery in New York for two shows on June 3rd, at the World Cafe in Philadelphia on June 4th, and at Space in Evanston for sold-out shows on June 15th and 16th. I recommend exploring the Camper Van Beethoven and Cracker catalogs, as well as Lowry's solo work from 2011's The Palace Guards through the new vending machine. You can follow him on Instagram and Twitter at David C. Lowry. He is not to be confused with the movie director, David Lowry. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, whom the world does need now. I'm Mark Carroll. Please follow Carol Pop on Twitter at Carol Popcast. And you can follow me as well at Mark Carroll at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O. Also visit the Carol Pop website, carolpop.com, where you can find this podcast and enter your email address so you'll hear about upcoming episodes and events. Tickets are on sale now for my onstage Carol Pop conversation with actor-singer-director Michael Shannon at the Club Space in Evanston, Illinois on July 31st. Go to evanstonspace.com for more information and to buy tickets. Please share this episode, subscribe, tell your friends, and tune in again next week for another Carol Pop Conversation. Thanks.